1: Hi, my name is Keller McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books network of podcasts. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. This month, I'm interviewing Paul Moises, author of the excellent new book, Balkan Genocides Holocaust and Ethnic Cleansing in the Twentieth Century. Paul brings a unique perspective to his examination of the recent history of mass violence in the Balkans. He's a native of the region and brings personal engagement with the history to his book. At the same time, his academic training is in religious studies, and he has long worked to facilitate interfaith dialogue. The result is an even-handed examination of the historical causes of violence in the Balkans, and a fair-minded attempt to assess responsibility for the many tragedies of the 20th century. As Paul suggests, any time you get criticized by both sides, you're probably doing something right. I had a great time talking with him, and hope you enjoy listening to the interview. So, here it is. Hi, Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Thank you for calling me. Yes, and thank you so much for, for doing the interview. For our listeners, um, today I'm interviewing Paul Moises, uh, author of the book, Balkan Genocides, Hol- Holocaust and Ethnic Cleansing in the 20th Century, published by Roman and Littlefield Publishers, part of the series, Studies in Genocide, Religion, History, and Human Rights. Paul's exceptionally well placed to conduct such a study. Uh, A native of the region, he's lived for a long time in the United States, uh, but is able to read the Balkan languages that many genocide scholars can't read, and has a natural feel for the area. His book is a thoughtful, even-handed attempt to untangle a complicated and controversial subject, and it has a wealth of information about periods and conflicts people know little about. It's well worth the read. I encourage you all to get it. Uh, And with that as a preface, let's just jump into the interview. So, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how and why you ended up as an academic who's interested in genocide? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I was born in Yugoslavia back in 1936. I was born in the part of Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia now. uh, That is Croatia in the city of Osijek. At the age of four, my parents moved to Serbia, to a region called Vojvodina. That's where I went to um, elementary school, middle school, high school. Then I went to Belgrade University to the law school. I studied for two years law. Uh, At that time I met an American clergyman who came to our church. I'm a United Methodist by religious affiliation. And both of my parents were pastors. My father was a minister until he got killed uh, during World War II by the Nazis. And then uh, my mother took over the pastorate. So I grew up in the church. And I met a visiting Methodist minister from the United States who invited me to come to study at Florida Southern College. That turned out to be a very difficult and long process in terms of getting a passport because Yugoslavs at that time, back in the middle 50s, were a pretty close society. It took two full years to work on that project, but somehow, someway it happened, and in 1957, I came to the United States to Florida Southern College. It was there that I decided actually to switch my interest in religious studies because for the first time I took a course in religion and I loved it so much that I took another and another and another and before too long I was majoring in religion and my professors were so wonderful that when I started thinking as to what I might do with myself and my life I thought wow maybe I can do the same kind of thing for somebody else as my professors did for me. So upon graduating from Florida Southern College I went to Boston University to the School of Theology and uh, by 1964 I was finished with my classwork and with my dissertation. The dissertation was on the history of the Congregational Methodist Churches in Bulgaria and Yugoslavia In a sense, I was trying to pay off my debt to my heritage, uh, because nobody else, by the way, was... uh, I I was actually the only, uh, yeah, at that time, I was the only university graduate coming out of our church, so I was the only one capable of doing this kind of work. Huh. So, in any case, I got my PhD in 1965 and have been teaching at several colleges ever since. Currently, I'm at Rosemont College in Pennsylvania. I've
1: been there since 1970. And you've published several books. How how did this one come about? Why did you decide to write on this? Well,
0: most of my books deal with Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And then approximately, what, uh, six years ago or seven years ago, I got a telephone call from Richard Stockton College in New Jersey, they have a master's degree program in Holocaust and genocide studies, and, and they inquired whether I might be interested in applying for a distinguished visiting professor position that they had at their at their university. And well, to make a longer short, a longer story short, I got the position for one semester, mm-hmm. and I immersed myself into teaching then on Holocaust and genocide, both at the undergraduate level as well as the graduate level. And it was at that time when slowly it became evident to me as I was trying to prepare for classes and that there was very little material on what was happening during the Holocaust years in the Balkans. The study of the Holocaust basically centers on Northeastern Europe, on Central Europe, and on Western Europe, and very little on the Balkans, former Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, and Greece. So I thought, hmm, nobody has done that work, and who would be more capable of doing that than myself? And I have this vested interest because indeed a number of members of my own family perished during that time period. So Slowly, I was getting to the point where I thought, I've got to do this. It it, it became sort of a compelling compelling issue, you know. There's another reason that I decided to do that, and that is that I think I am one of the people who is able to balance the Yugoslavia, partially because of my mixed ethnicity and because I was born in one part of Yugoslavia but was raised in another part of Yugoslavia. And I really think of myself not as a server or this or that. I think of myself as a former Yugoslav. And therefore, I was able to try to be as objective as, as possible. It's not possible, of course, to be entirely objective. But I tried very, very, very hard not to take sides. I think I succeeded in, in, in doing that. Most people who read my book, Thought that that I, I was not leaning too much one side or the other. Except what's interesting is that people who have read the book from the former Yugoslavia, if they're Serb, they think I'm anti-Serb. <laughs> they're Croats, they think I'm anti-Croat. If they're Muslim, they think I'm anti-Muslims. And I'm not. I'm really pro all three of them. You know, the problem is that all former Nationalities in yugoslavia have at various periods of time done some kind things to each
1: other but I'm, to be. I'm I'm curious um what most academics don't have the experience of having so many people care so deeply about what they write in some sense it must be. I don't know, not a privilege, but but you must be appreciate the fact that people care about what you're working on and pay attention to it. On the other hand, I'm wondering what kinds of pressures that puts on you in your effort to be neutral or objective, as objective well, as you can be. You
0: know what? I, I think since I've written some other books on Eastern Europe previous to mm-hmm. that, I've already found out earlier that... Certain people like my books and certain people hate it. And it's something to do with the part of the book that they decide to read. Hmm. So, I was prepared for that. I was ready for that. I expected it. You know? And um, actually, up to now, I must admit, it didn't happen too often. There were only several people who have deemed to react to it very negatively. Predominantly, it was the Bosnian Serb who had sort of decided that I am... Hating Serbs and that I am uh, not being fair and not being scholarly and not being objective because, in his opinion, by the way, a people who had suffered, who were victims in a genocide, cannot become perpetrators. And that's patently false. Mm-hmm. It is possible to be at some point a victim and then later on when a different historical situation takes place one can become a perpetrator sometimes for the very reason that one does not want to become a victim again and then does a kind of a preemptive genocide of their former enemies i think that happened several times in the former yugoslavia and in the balkans
1: yeah, and, and, and that's maybe a good time to turn to the material in this book. Um, and let me just say for the listeners, there's there's an enormous amount of the material in the book, and, and we could talk about it for a long, long time, longer than we have. So I'm going to pick and choose and suggest, again, that that you get a copy of the book and read it for yourself. Um, but that is one of the big ideas that I see coming out of this book. One of these basic themes is the way in which previous conflicts and tensions um survived and lived on in the memories of the people who, 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 who lived in the region. And, and you suggest this is true, f- that these memories and these, these tensions go back much farther than the beginning of the 20th century. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. You know,
0: uh, the people in the Balkans have very, very long memories. In fact, I think one of the weaknesses of their way of life is they live too much in the past. To yeah. them, events that took several hundred years ago appear to be as if they were yesterday. And since many of those events have been damaging to their own mode of living, to their own sense of identity, and they feel that it's almost like a game that goes on. And let's say, like, for instance, whether it's in football or in soccer, one team went ahead and did some scored some goals against us mm-hmm. but now we are getting up some steam and we are starting to score on them and we not only want to tie the game, we want to get ahead and so we try to do more damage to them as time goes on and I, I picked up a phrase, I don't even know where I got it, but basically uh, uh, people who live in the past do not have a future until they mm-hmm. succeed to somehow switch themselves more into a a uh, constructive present that has the possibility of reconciling some of those conflicts. Mm-hmm. They oftentimes live with each other as if they're not going to continue to be neighbors forever. But in fact, even though there were attempts to exterminate each other, the fact is that they're really much too numerous to exterminate each other mm-hmm. completely. So they will always have to share that territory. Somehow they have to find in themselves this ability, and by the way, I I don't want to give the impression to people who are listening that all of the people in that area have that. I'm talking sort of in some generalities, but uh, there there are certainly a lot of people who wish to move that area of the world or of Europe into the 21st and 22nd and 23rd century with much more positive interactions than than the past uh, was the case. So I looked at the, by the way, I I decided, you know, I'm not going to really go back to the Byzantine era or whatever and do all of that. I, I did try to focus on the 20th century. And what I've discovered, by the way, is that there have been three major waves of genocides the first wave I was totally unaware of. Um, I think I'm the first scholar who has analyzed the first and second Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913. It mm-hmm. came to a pretty shocking conclusion that those were genocidal wars. Um, I've always thought they were wars of liberation of the Balkan people to drive out the Ottoman Turks from the Balkans and start enjoying their independence and nationhood and so on. And only upon looking at it very carefully and of course nobody who wrote about that period earlier could use the word genocide because the word genocide didn't exist until World War II, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I looked at it very carefully and came to kind of a sad conclusion uh, that the Armenian genocides in 1915 and onward were really not the first European genocides, or the fir- fir- first genocides of that area, because the Armenian genocide really happened in Turkey rather than in the Balkans. But um, uh, 1912, 1913 was the first set series of genocides. It was uh, some, some scholars may actually contest my findings. Because usually we think that in genocide there's one perpetrator and uh, there's one victim. And maybe a lot of bystanders or a lot of people who are somehow accomplices to it. But this, I think, was a clear example of mutual genocides. Mm -hmm. Because what happened is that the four Christian countries that created the Balkan alliance against the Ottoman Turks first turned into a genocidal action not only against the Turks but against all of the Muslims of the area, whom they considered to be Turks, because, after all, in their mind, they've converted to Islam. Now they're no longer part of the body politic. And then, of course, what happened is, since they had to divvy up land that had been for about 500 years under Turkish control, they needed to ethnically cleanse the area so that they could say, this is our land, our troops are here, most of the population now is our population, therefore this belongs to us. And in the process, they had to either kill or drive out all the other ethnic groups that happened to be living in the same city or in the same area. And so unbelievable cruelties took place in that that war. I was very, very much shocked as to what happened during that war. Another thing, for instance, that surprised me is a um, lot of people know about the ethnic rapes during the most recent wars of the 1990s, specifically in Bosnia, right? Um, it seems to me from what I've looked at that there may have been actually greater genocidal rapes in the Balkan Wars hmm. than in the war in Bosnia, you know? But people just not know how to categorize that most people talk about outrages against women. There wasn't even the vocabulary, in a sense, that scholars and observers could use to describe what we now know was clearly an attempt to kind of eliminate, almost biologically, a group of people from out of that area. So that was the first wave of the genocide. Then the second major wave of the genocides happened during World War II. One of them, the most important one, uh, was the Holocaust against the Jewish people. Sometimes, by the way, I'm not entirely sure whether I use the word Holocaust specifically only about the killings and extermination of the Jewish people. Or I'm also using it sometimes more broadly for all of the genocides that took in... During the World War, during World War Two, in the name of a Nazi plan of Aryanizing Europe, mm-hmm. so um, what was happening in during the Holocaust there is that Jewish population of the Balkan Peninsula was practically eliminated. When it came to percentages of the loss of Jewish lives, Macedonian. 97% of all of its Jewish population. That, now, numerically, that's not a huge number because there were only 3,000 Jews in Macedonia, little over 3,000. Right? But it was so far that only a hand, literally a handful of people survived, right? In Serbia and in Croatia, some like 90% of the Jewish was alienated. That was a very, very thorough job. Um already in nineteen forty one the German uh, uh, commanders wrote back to Berlin Serbia is Judenfrei is free of Jews. This was before the conference that decided that Jews are to that Europe is to be free of Jews, you know. But in any case, um there was the killing of the Jews, then there was the genocide of the Serbs in Croatia. The Croatian Nazi puppet government collaborated with the Germans to the full extent. And um, um, there's huge debate, by the way, how many people were killed by the Croatian Nazis Nazi uh, Kostashe. Serbian scholars and the general population tends to vastly inflate that number oftentimes to about a million Serbs, or even more than a million. Uh, Croats tend to diminish that number so radically that it almost seems significant. Uh, for instance, the former president of Croatia, Tanya Tudjman, who later on became the prime minister of that, and the president of that country, he estimated only about 20,000 Serbs. Hmm. At that span, 20,000 to a million. This is so enormous that neither of them is even close to the truth. <laughs> very difficult to actually come to numbers. I spent a lot of time citing what different scholars are saying. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: But um, I, I tried not to be too exact about numbers. I think there's something uh, immoral about bickering about numbers when the number of it are so large that it really does not matter whether there are 10,000 more or 10,000 less, you know. Mm-hmm. There was that huge uh, 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 genocidal uh, attempt. Also, Gypsies, or nowadays we call them Romas, That's their own self designated language. The Romans were also hugely exterminated. The unfortunate thing about Roma's is they themselves are not able to document that because so few of them were educated that they they couldn't really reflect on what was happening to them they were aware that they were being eradicated but there there are very few people who had actually tried to study that to the degree in which the jewish population was able to to do that on on their own behalf Um, then after World War II, and that's also something fairly new in my book. Uh, I've also come to the conclusion that the remnants of the German ethnic population, this is not German troops who came to Yugoslavia during the war, there had been approximately 600,000 ethnic Germans who lived in northern Yugoslavia for the last maybe 300 years or so. And some of them, when the Nazi Troops invaded the country, sided with them. They, they had sympathy for the Third Reich. But uh, other people were not that much interested in what was happening. They were really not politicized. They were farmers or business people who were just going about doing the job. And of course, when the war ended, uh, um, the local population was so angry. Now, The Germans became the target of elimination. And basically what happened in various ways, from about 600,000 Germans, their numbers fell eventually to about 6,000 and then even fewer in a matter of maybe 15 years. The the first post-war years, 1945 to 1948-49, being the worst. There was another... I I describe that not so much as a genocide, but as a war crime. All of the troops that were allied with the Nazis were later on um, eliminated. There was mass killing of those troops that had sided against the partisans. So I tried to document that as well. And then the last way was the 1990s. I think many of the people who are going to read my book be already aware of what was happening because it was so much on our screens, in our newspapers and so on. So a lot of people know about Croatia, about Bosnia, uh, about Kosovo, you know. So I tried very carefully to weigh whether what was happening there, was it really a genocide or was it more like a massacre?
1: Okay, Paul, so we've got the three... Uh, waves of genocide that you talked about. I have to say, I I, I did my research um, my originally years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a Habsburgist, oh, a Habsburg specialist, right. specialist, and my dissertation is actually about the Habsburg army in the First World War, mm-hmm. and so I know probably a little bit more about the Balkan wars than most people. And you're right, I had I had never heard anybody talk about them as a genocide before you. Right. Um, one of the things you talk about that that begins at that point, or at least you you start talking about it at that point, and then runs as a thread throughout the century, uh, is this idea of ethno religiosity. Yes, uh, a kind of idea or ideology um, that that you suggest is characteristic of the Balkans, and that 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 makes people. In the Balkans and politics and the way politics plays out in the Balkans differ from the, the rest of Europe. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by ethno religiosity and, and, and why that is so characteristic of the Balkans and had the effects it has? Sure.
0: Okay. Um, I wrote a book called Yugoslavian Inferno, and the subtitle was Ethno religious warfare in the Balkans. This was a book about the wars of the 1990s. And my publisher, first wanted me to say ethnic and religious warfare in the Balkans. And I said, no, you don't understand. The relationship between ethnicity and religion is much closer, so we we, we, should, we should really use it as a single word. And he said, well, what about hyphenating it? I said, actually, closer than hyphenating a word, it really is a single concept. And so he let me do it eventually. He permitted me to use that. Uh, single word ethno-religiosity. What it means basically is that over the historical development, it goes really back to the time when Christianity started spreading not only to the Balkans, by the way, uh, ethno-religious symbiosis is true not only of the Balkans, it's also true of the rest of Eastern Europe and to some degree also in Western Europe. You know, it's this identification of nation with the religion, so For instance, in our mind, and you will I think many of our listeners might recognize that when we talk of the Polish people, we know them to be Catholic. When we talk about Italians, we also know them to be Catholic. When we talk about Swedes, we know them to be Protestant, right? And if we talk about Russians, they are Orthodox. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how it also works, of course, in the Balkans. And so people in the Balkans have clustered themselves around their churches, uh, since they were so often occupied by the great powers, Austria-Hungary at one point, the Ottoman Empire, Venice, uh, Byzantium, and so on, um, oftentimes when they were dominated by a foreign power, then they did not have their own governing authorities, their own political structure. The political structure was crushed. So the group that succeeded in carrying on on the national consciousness were the clergy. So they became, the clergy then became, practically speaking, the ones who were the leaders of the people. And the people saw themselves predominantly as orthodox or catholic or eventually when Islam came to the area. As being Muslim. And at the same time they realized that they were an orthodox people but not the same, let's say, a Serbian orthodox people who are not identical to the Bulgarian orthodox people next to them. And so before too long they uh, basically defined their ethnic, ethnic self-consciousness as being very closely tied to religion, not so much as a religious conviction. It's not, it's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of identity. And so people, if you ask a Serb, what are you? They will say, I'm a, a I'm sorry, they will say, I'm an Orthodox, but I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist, <laughs> but I'm an Orthodox atheist. Okay. What they want to say by that is being, let's say, a Macedonian, that means they're orthodox being a montenegrin it means they're orthodox if they are croats they're catholic so this is that ethno-religiosity and therefore when they are in a fight or so on they bring together religion politics economics and all of that into one single cohesive unit
1: And. You talk about the, the the fishers, or I forget the word you use, but the fishers are the are the great divides that run down the Balkans between yeah. Orthodox and Catholic, and then then you talk about the other one, which is the introduction of Islam. Um, and they by the way, you know what's interesting?
0: Some people could have thought that this diversity that the Balkans have in terms of multiplicity of religions, mm-hmm. and and different languages, and different cultures, and different customs and so on, that this is something to be proud of, this is something to be happy about, you know, like, look at this tremendous diversity of people, all of whom live on this beautiful real estate, but they see it as a liability, they say, we live in such a beautiful place, but isn't it too bad that we are all so different from each other, you know, they seem to think of that really as a weakness rather than a strength.
1: Well, and that's that. As, as I read the book, um, and I should say to, to the listeners, we probably won't talk too much about this. But yeah. but I do see this book as having something of a contemporary goal in mind, which is to encourage the yeah. the task of interreligious discussion, um, and dialogue. Um, how is it? I, I'm not sure how to phrase the question. How how is it that diversity is so? feared in the Balkans, and, and, and what kind of efforts have been made to, to diminish that fear?
0: Well, I, I think the diversity, the problem with that diversity was that very frequently one of the ethnic groups, either because of its size or because of its uh, armed forces or because of its, of its alliance with another power, so on, um, uh, tried to dominate the others. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, They never saw the possibility of really working together, except, by the way, under Tito's rule. Tito had attempted to bring about a um, Yugoslav cooperative federation. It seemed to work. By the way, at the time when I lived in Yugoslavia, I think there was a very reasonable amount of positive interaction between all of the ethnic groups within the boundaries of the former Yugoslavia. And what helped them solidify was their common sense of threat from the Soviet Union after they broke away from the Soviet bloc, and even to some degree a little bit of a fear from the West, because they never knew whether the Balkan Peninsula will somehow become a battleground between the two great blocs, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then, you know, Tito died, and there was nobody to continue quite as well in promoting this notion of the possibility of common life. And before too long, when basically the communist ideology collapsed in the late 1980s, really, uh, it appeared, by the way, at first that Yugoslavia will be the country which has the easiest transition from the communist system of ruling to a more democratic Western system of ruling, because Yugoslavia was so open to the West from the late, but from the middle 60s, really, onward, you know. But, But then I think what happened is that a group of politicians came to the surface who decided that it's better to be a big fish in a small pond than to be a small fish in a big pond, and they started fighting, really, for power. And before too long, they divide themselves out along these ethnic lines. You know, these ethnic lines. I think ethnicity there is sort of like like um, like these um, great continental plateaus that sort of move the land. And in the hmm. sort of the Balkans, they seem to be crashing into each other rather than moving away from one
1: another. How interesting. I'd, I'd never thought about using geology to think about this. But, well, not but, but yeah. one of the things you point out in the book is that that one of the prime movers of these tectonic plates is is, is the fact that this area was competed over by empires. Yes, yeah. And that their experience of empire, and, and you even suggest, I think it's a wise comment, that Americans think of empire as somewhat benevolent because, yeah. well, sure. we're running the empire. But, but their experience, and, and I should say, I, I was living in Vienna from 1994 and 1995 when much of this was happening, and, and a lot of the kind of impression I get of, of Habsburg sense is exactly the American sense that we are bringing civilization yeah, to this area, that right. they're being part of the empire is a good thing. Right. They don't think so. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, you know, I used to teach in Austria, for, and we had a number of Austrian professors. Um, deliver lectures to our students, you know, and I was listening to their version of the Habsburgs, you know, never, they never really uh, got any land by war, Uh, (laughs) uh, they used to say we we, we married uh, and and created an empire by marrying with other royal lines and this and that, you know, I thought to myself, how wonderful, how nice, it's like a Vienna waltz into the Balkans, you know. Uh, it wasn't really like that. By the way, they did bring some cultures, for instance, when you look at what happened after Bosnia was annexed to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there was a lot of progress, you know. There is a positive and a negative. Even the Ottoman Turks coming, the Turks were actually a very developed people at the time when they moved so dramatically into the heart of Europe. Uh, but but you know the fact is that an empire basically uses the annexed lands as um, basically like a colonial power does for the purposes of um, resources and cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And obviously the people in these hinterlands simply are moving at a much, much slower pace than uh, in the seat of the empire. You know? We don't want to get now into this discussion too much as to, you know, the benefits or the uh, liabilities of, of imperial rule, but but that was part of the problem, you know. So during during um, World War Two there was this liberation of the Balkan people from Empire, except that, of course, in World War II, indeed, a great empire um, occupied them. And then later on, by the way, the Soviet Empire came and attempted to do the very same thing that the Nazi Empire tried to do.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, most interesting developments in the field of Holocaust studies, is this... this... This move towards seeing Nazi Germany as an empire, or at least a burgeoning, aspiring empire. Yes, yep. And thinking about how that affected its 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 actions in Eastern Europe yes. and the Balkans. Yes. In fact, I was I was I was chatting with and in interviewing Donald Bloxham oh a month or so ago in a podcast that will go or well, by the time people hear this will have gone up for a, for a couple of weeks. And one of the things we're talking about is the way in which Auschwitz has shaped our understanding of what genocide is, Mm -hmm. that the, the image in the Western mind of the Holocaust is the train tracks running up to Birkenau Mm -hmm. and the kind of industrialized mass killing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that stands out about the story you're telling is, is the, not the absence of industrialized killing. Um, uh, here's here's something very interesting.
0: Very few people unfortunately know uh, outside of Yugoslavia about a place called Jasenovac. Jasenovac is Yugoslavia's Auschwitz. It was that biggest of the camps that, in which the largest number of victims died during World War II. Jasenovac is located in Croatia right on the Bosnian border. In fact, a river that divides Croatia from Bosnia Separated the two parts of a camp. Part of the camp, the killing fields were in Bosnia, but much of the killing also took huh. place in this extremely large series of camps. It was not a single camp, it was four or five or more camps, all under one single command. And uh, even Nazi um, visitors were shocked at the, at the savagery of the killing there. At first, by the way, when that camp was organized, the Ustasche government sent some people to Germany to study the German camps. Hmm. They were eager to learn how do you deal with a large number of undesirables, right? And so, you know, they learned how to build walls or to put uh, barbed wire around and, and use... Uh, uh, forced labor and so on, you know, but but the killing uh, was was rarely as sophisticated as it was in Auschwitz. Much of it was done by by the most blunt instruments or by knives or by by just you know really uh, savagery that 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 it's very hard to explain without starting to cry. I mean, all killing of that sort brings tears to the eyes. But uh, uh, some of it was so incredibly horrendous that when I was doing research and I was reading part of it, most of it was when I was by myself, I would start crying uncontrollably because in my own mind I could see it so vividly, although it was just a description in words. There, There aren't nearly as many photos, by the way, from the killings in the former Yugoslavia, and the Balkans in general, as there are in Poland and in
1: many other places, you know. Um, why, why is that? Can I ask? I'm, I'm curious. Excuse me? Why, why is that? Why are there not more photos?
0: Well, I, I suppose it was the technical uh, level of civilization. I think many people in the Balkans simply did not have the equipment to do the, uh, that. Um, there just weren't enough photo cam- cameras and stuff like that in order to do it so mm-hmm. in, in many instances, I mean there are pictures let, let me not get the impression that, there is, that we have no photographic evidence, we do have some photographic evidence but not nearly as much as one finds uh, from the camps in, in other parts of Europe
1: yeah and that's, that's an interesting question uh, want, as you alluded to earlier, these are hotly contested debates yes. about the numbers and the motivations. Yes. What yes. kind of evidence base exists? How easy is it? I know many of your sources were secondary sources yes, uh, as yes. you did this book, but but what kind of evidentiary base is there for the the, the writing that's being done in this area?
0: Well, there there, there were pictures, there were implements, mm-hmm. um, uh, there were survivors there were there were of course also documents of the the government wrote about these things uh, for instance German reports to Berlin in which they oftentimes brag about the number of people that they had arrested hmm. and the number of people who had been liquidated and so on. so so there is real documentary documentary evidence. there are also attempts uh, by the way to exhume around Yasenovat, some of the mass graves, and and do that kind of a study of the remains. Um, but obviously this has been so long ago that they're not finding, uh, this. you know, if, if there had been excavations immediately after World War II, they would have found much more raw evidence than they're finding it now 50 years later. Uh, some of the people are uh, uh, attacking. Tito's government. In fact, there's some Serbs are now blaming Tito, who was a Croat by ethnicity, that mm-hmm. he did not permit excavation at that time because he wanted to cover up Croat misdeeds, even though he was a communist and really hated the ustasas But uh, I, I, I think they're wrong in uh, uh, blaming Tito for that. I think what Tito was trying to do is to put it behind like saying okay we all know how terrible this was now let's let the dead be in the ground and let us move on but now of course people are using it against him
1: yeah and i'll come back to that in a minute let me but let me pause here because in some ways i interrupted you talking about Yasinovich. I wanted to ask one of the kind of continuities you see in the 20th century seems to me is differential treatment of victims by gender, not always and not everywhere, but a significant amount of the time, uh, either men or women, depending on the occasion are singled out and treated in a particular way because of their gender. wondering if you could talk about that a little bit.
0: Um, you know what? I didn't deal specifically with that in the book, Mm -hmm. um, But since you're asking the question, let me try in just a few words to suggest that it seems to me that the men had been mostly the target of genocide. Part of the reason is that they were the fighting force or potential fighting force. So one ethnic group saw the men of the other ethnic group as potentially being the ones who are going to resist them more effectively than the women. And therefore... Uh, Numerically, I think the men were, first of all, the larger number of victims, and oftentimes they were also the first victims. For instance, when in Belgrade uh, the Nazis decided to round up the Jews, they first rounded up only men. The women and children were left alone to stay at home, and nothing was happening to them, whereas the men were taken for manual physical labor and then they were also the first ones to be killed but then as a sort of an afterthought they rounded up all of the women and took them into a camp which was a former fairgrounds and then they uh, kept them there under horrendous conditions and decided to kill them gradually by putting them into this huge truck i think some of the holocaust literature of other countries Um, make some references to this special truck that was designed in Germany into which about 50 or 60 people could be placed and it was hermetically closed. And then the exhaust, the the carbon monoxide of the um, exhaust of the truck killed them on the way to another location. And there the Nazis for instance used gypsy labor to dig the hole to, to dig the graves and to dump the bodies in there later on the gypsy workforce was destroyed in order to kind of get rid of the evidence you know um, now where the women suffered more was of course by, by rape uh, some men were also raped by the way there is all kinds of genital mutilation uh, taking place uh, against the men uh, uh, we, 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 we read for instance that what happened during the war in Bosnia is that sometimes the Serbian guards would sort of uh, enjoy forcing two Bosnian Muslim men to have intercourse with one another while they were watching them and basically threatening them that they will kill them if they don't do that or they would force them to bite each other's testicles off or something like that but uh, clearly more women were attack, simply because that was a thing that the men would rather do than, let's say, rape the men. So, um, you know, while the numbers are hotly contested and we're ranging anywhere from, I don't know, 5 to 60,000 women that were raped. Um, the the final nobody knows the final numbers. By the way, we will again never never find out for sure, but clearly it is uh, probably more like ten thousand or so women, which is plenty. By the way, ten thousand is a figure that defies our imagination. That's a huge number of women who have suffered enormously. So yeah, in you know. At, at sometimes it was men who were the predominant target and at other times it was women but I don't see it as a deliberate policy specifically against men or against women I've seen some books in which an attempt is being made to couch it in that language I, I don't find it uh, uh, persuasive
1: So you mentioned Tito and Tito's effort to kind of move forward by not looking at the past. Um, and and in the book, I think you suggest that maybe that's not an appropriate response. And so you've talked about these three waves of ethnic cleansing and violence in the 20th century. Um, how do you, and, and, and about how those waves are provoked Uh, by memories of the past and behaviors of the people in the past. And so here we are in the beginning of the 20... I guess it's not quite the beginning of the 21st century anymore, but close. Um, What is being done or needs to be done to prevent that fourth wave from happening?
0: Well, for one thing, I think what is happening is um, the criminal tribunal that the United Nations have set up to try people for war crimes and for genocides which is taking place in the Hague my sense is that ICTY is a very very important and necessary uh... instrument which will in the long time in the long range uh, help move collective responsibility to personal responsibility there are a lot of people who criticize the ICTY for a variety of reasons. Many people think that it is only directed against Serbs or that it is uh, a um, unnecessary tool or that it is a, a very slow bureaucracy or whatever, that they're not either, either they are punishing people too hard or too little, but my sense is that when the international community decided to create a special tribunal which will look at the evidence as juridically dispassionately as possible in order to discover who are the culprits and to free those people who were erroneously uh, accused and to punish people who were the culprits. I think that is one step mm-hmm. which hopefully is going to, in the long run, dissuade uh, people from wanting to... Uh, continue to do this kind of uh, genocidal activity. Um, My hope is that the notion of dialogue is also going to contribute to um, finding other ways of resolving problems. The Balkan mentality until recently was that you solve problems either by debate, you know, which you really try to rip into each other verbally, or if that isn't sufficient, then to settle things by fists or by other violent means. I've been to a conference which a former friend of mine who was for a short time the president of Macedonia, his name is Boris Tchaikovsky. Boris Tchaikovsky unfortunately died in 2003 in an airplane accident. He was president of Macedonia, I believe, for about three or four years, and he organized a conference in Macedonia in which all of the presidents of the former Yugoslav states were invited, and also presidents of some of the nearby countries, the president of Hungary, of Bulgaria, and Albania were also invited to that conference. Uh, So were the Greeks and the Turks, but they didn't respond for their own other reasons because they have issues between between themselves <laughs> <laughs> so what was fascinating at that conference is that and I was present at that conference um, it was in 2002 no two, I'm sorry 2003 uh, all of the heads of states of these countries have talked about saying, we have made such, when they talked we, they didn't mean themselves, they meant their countries. We have made such mistakes, and we now know that that was the wrong way of trying to resolve our differences. We have to do it through dialogue. Okay? Now, the very fact that they are using publicly that word, and that they are somehow trying to get on the bandwagon of doing dialogue, I think to me is encouraging. Uh, Obviously they're not immediately going to create the kingdom of God and of peace (laughs) and so on. It's going to be, I think, a very, very slow process with a lot of setbacks and some progress and setbacks and so on. But hopefully uh, with some participation of the international community they, they, you know what they, what, what they have going for them? They desperately want to be part of United Europe. Unless United Europe or European, European Union doesn't fall apart with financial <laughs> problems in the meantime. But they see that as such a great possibility for them to move into the mainstream of European life <clears throat> and standard of living that I I have a feeling that by using that as an enticement, saying, okay, guys, we know you'd like to join us and we want you to join, but here are the preconditions for joining. You have to start using the following ways of resolving your problems and then utilizing basically accepted parliamentarian and democratic means of resolving issues between people. And hopefully by that, they will understand the advantages of doing it in this way. The one thing that worries me a little bit is that when a new generation of people grows up that did not suffer the consequences of war, they suddenly start playing with the idea that they can be Rambos, that they can be macho men, that they can you know, go and show themselves, and they're going to resolve this thing in their own advantage. This is definitely what happened, I think, in the wars of the 1990s. It was waged mostly by a generation of people who did not actually suffer through World War II. Although sometimes they were egged on by the older people who still had some unresolved problems of World War II.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I just have one more question that I ask to every person I interview. Um, What are you working on now? Well, um, there are a
0: group of us in Europe and in the United States who are starting to work on a very large project which is going to be called something like Worldwide Christian Community and the Cold War. What we want to do is to see what kind of impact did the Cold War have on religious communities, particularly Christian. We are not talking, we're not going to go into Judaism and into Islam. We're going to stick with the Christian community. And to look at what kind of impact did this great divide of the Cold War have upon the religious communities in the United States, in Western Europe, in Scandinavia, in Eastern Europe, in the former Soviet Union, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, okay? And to what degree were Christians able to impact the relationship of the great powers and other countries in the Cold War? Uh, We started working on that for about one year so far. We are woefully lacking funds. We we have the ideas and we have the people. Uh, What we do not have is money to meet and money to encourage um, different people to work on respective chapters that will eventually yield most likely a multi-volume, almost encyclopedic work. Probably four volumes. I think we are, we are thinking basically of four volumes, of which one of the volumes will be on the role of the Cold War and the Christian community in North America. So I'm, I'm involved in that group of people that are pushing that
1: project. I have to say, that sounds fascinating. Um, it is good, yeah. Yeah, it, I'm really looking forward to it. And I hope that, um, it's like it's obviously, that you find some funding. Mm-hmm. But yeah, okay, so great. Well, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, it's been a wonderful interview. I appreciate so much your time. And I hope that um, sometime we'll have a chance to do this again. That'd be wonderful.
0: Thank you so much Excellent. for giving me the opportunity to call, to talk about something that's very important to me.
1: Excellent. All right, take care, Paul. Okay, see ya.